Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Angie Mazakis. Angie Mazakis's first book of poetry, I Was Waiting to See What You Would Do First, was chosen by Billy Collins as a finalist for the 2020 Miller Williams Prize and was published by University of Arkansas Press in March 2020. The book was also a finalist for the National Poetry Series and was named by the Boston Globe as one of the best books of 2020. Her poems have appeared in the New Republic, Boston Review, the Iowa Review, Best New Poets, Washington Square Review, Columbia Journal, Indiana Review, Conduit, Lana Turner Journal, Nat Brute, and other journals. Angie is a PhD student in creative writing at Ohio University and is now a resident in North Carolina. <laughs> Hi, and welcome, Angie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, would you like to start us with a poem? Sure, okay. I will read People With No Sight Still See Ghosts, which is a new story headline. It's not the feeling of wind, but of trying to feel wind on a still day. And suddenly you're a kite flyer, a sailor. The wind's potential direction and speed are necessary. How far and fast will you have to follow what could be swiftly taken away? A blind man who gained his sight saw people walking away as inexplicably shrinking. I was walking my friend's dog and it was barking at nothing. It was barking at the light disappearing into the clouds. I was trying to decide who to tell an important thing first so I could say, you're the only person I've told. I looked inside someone's house and could see inside a window and then inside their French doors where someone with hands on both handles opened them outward. Historically, French doors opened inward and so did you for a while. Then you shrank inexplicably from me and I followed the light through the opening in the door as long as I could. I put my finger on it and followed it until I could no longer see it. And then I was accidentally pointing at a hot air balloon that you could have maybe seen from where you were until it curved around whichever way the trade winds blew. Before everyone believed the earth was round, some knew that it was round. Because if you stood on, a, on the seashore and watched a ship sailing away, it would disappear from view. But if you climbed to a higher point, a hill or a tower, the ship would become visible again. And when it vanished again, the hull vanished first, and then the sails and smokestack disappeared last, as though the ship was dropping behind a hill. Once the wind blew right through all the holes in your heart, and the sound was 40 low notes blown into glass bottles. Once I found your whisper on a wind map. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. In Billy Collins' introduction to your book, he says that the attention demanded from the reader by these poems is exhilarating. Um, and I feel that in, in this poem as you read it, and it makes me think that, I mean, we talk a lot about narrative poetry and linearity, like it's almost a bad thing. Um, I just think it's one thing, right? But um, I think when I hear you read people with no sight still see ghosts, I think that people aren't being linear enough. Like they're not pushing, like if you push linearity enough, it becomes really exciting. 
Um, and that's how I feel like when you read it, like you don't know where the sentence, like what sentence leads to what next, like where it will go and you keep pushing, pushing. And um, it's like envelopes opening or something. I think it's really incredible. Thank you. And it just makes me want to think more about ghosts too. <laughs> okay. So Billy Collins selected your book and this is your first book of poetry. And um, I want to talk about the art on the cover. I want to talk about you winning this prize. Um, um, I guess I want to say that when I found out Billy Collins chose your book, um, it made Billy Collins cool for me. Um, I was like, I was like, good job, Billy. Like I was so, <laughs> and when I read, I don't know, it was so good. Um, to- I was shocked. I did not expect. Oh, I do have a good story about this. Actually, another, another story. Um, so at some point, this was definitely a contest I was submitting to because I thought, oh, Billy Collins, like I write more narrative poetry. This is a, a while ago, maybe 10 years ago when I was first, like not very intensely submitting the manuscript. I was submitting it because I knew like I had to have a book basically if I wanted to eventually get a job, et cetera. Um, but I didn't love the manuscript. Um, so I was just kind of half, half-heartedly sending it out and I would miss deadlines all the time and just not care because I thought like, it's not gonna get chosen anyway. Um, but the Miller Williams prize was one that I was like specifically wanting to send out to because I thought like, okay, my poems are pretty narrative. But then as my poems started changing and the book changed, and I took out a lot of the older poems and replaced them with newer ones that I cared about more that were actually also less narrative. Um, I was, I thought he's, he would never choose my, he would never choose my, my book. And so, um, but there was a certain year where I felt like, okay, I feel like the book is done and I'm happy with it. And I'm going to send it out everywhere because I had heard that somebody had sent it to a specific number of contests or, or set, spent a specific amount of money, which is another kind of sad thing about <clears throat> having to spend money to publish poetry. But, and I was like, okay, that's what I have to do. So I had a certain number of contests that I was sending it out to. And so that, you know, there are certain dates where several contests have the same due dates. And so there were several, I think, I think the Miller Williams was in the end of September. So like September 30th, I think. And there were others on that day and I was more concerned about the others. So of course I spent like, and I spent a lot of time before each deadline for some of them, like rearranging poems and like front loading ones for certain contests that I thought they would choose these, you know, they would be more drawn to these poems. So I'll put them in the front. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I was like changing around my manuscript sometimes. Oh. I did it less as time went on. And mm. the more I liked the manuscript, the less I um, stressed about that because it was almost like obsessive for a while where I felt like I had to tailor each manus- the, the manuscript each time to specific contests. Um, but so I was sending it, I sent it out to a couple different contests and I'm sure I spent time like rearranging things a little bit at least. 
And then I remember telling a friend, I was like in my office at OU um, that was shared. And I remember telling a friend who was there and it was nighttime. I don't care about this <laughs> contest as much because I don't think my book has a chance. I don't think he would choose like the final judge, let alone it even getting to the final judge, right? But um, I was like, even if it did, I just don't think he would choose it. And so I looked back and I was pretty sure this had happened, but I looked to check because you can check on submittable the time that it was submitted. It was submitted at 11.59 p.m. <laughs> on, on September 30th. Wow. And unsubmittable, if you submit it too late, it closes. You can't, they won't take it. You know, like you just can't, you logistically cannot send it. So if I would have waited one more minute, like who wow. knows? It might still not be published. Wow. <laughs> so it really was pretty lucky. And I say that not to, not to like, um, advocate for procrastination, even though I'm good at that, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it wasn't procrastinating. It was, I really, I thought if I missed this deadline, it's not going to be a big deal. Cause like, there's no way he would choose this, but like, also, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I just thought, um, like content wise too, I didn't see him really caring for it. I don't know. Um, so yeah, so it was pretty lucky that I submitted it in the minute, in the 60 seconds that I did. (laughs) Yeah. That's an important minute. (laughs) Important minute in your life. Um, is, is, or was is he still, I don't know. Um, was he the judge every year for the, I think before this, he, what he wasn't, I can't remember when he started. And then just pretty recently in the last few years, it's Patricia Smith now. Okay. They've changed. Okay. It. That's yeah. right. That's right. I didn't know. Cause you know, some prizes have different judges every year and then some will have yeah. a tenure and they'll have the same judge. I um, mean, that's really interesting. And Um, I always, I think that's really good for listeners to hear because if any of our listeners are like me, they will tell themselves, they will always almost consistently tell themselves that a judge isn't going to be a good reader of their work. Um, like, I'll be like, oh yeah, I write nothing. And it's not about you writing like the judge. Like it's not that. And, And that's what I always think. That's what I always tell myself. Like, it's like Billy Collins, like. I would be like, uh, he's like, he's like more simple and not as dark or like, I don't know. (laughs) I would just argue like the way we argue ourselves out of things. Right. Right. Well, also I, I was doing that a lot where I would eliminate a contest because of Mm -hmm. the judge, especially if I thought that if the, you know, the aesthetic, if that judge's aesthetic went the other way and they were too abstract or something, their poems were too abstract. I mean, more so than mine, I would think like, no, I can't, you know, submit to this judge that like Susan Howe is judging or whoever it was. Yeah. Um, But then I, and of course I heard stories to the contrary where someone was like, well, no, I have this, I heard about this one judge who chose someone because their writing wasn't like theirs Mm -hmm. or 
um, someone else who, whose book was picked up and they never thought that, but I, I sort of discounted those because I feel like we see again and again, especially in like academic programs where people sort of gravitate to work that's like their own, right? Mm -hmm. And they advocate for that work and yeah, at least I've seen it. <laughs> so I, so in my head, it sort of has made me, and then this isn't true, I don't think, um, or at least there are cases that prove that it's otherwise, but, um, but yeah, in my head, I just thought like, well, people sort of like writing that is like theirs. And that is true sometimes, but yeah. Well, I think it's hard for us too to sort of occupy a space that exists outside of our minds and thinking. And we like to find things that affirm what we experience and believe. Yeah, I just think I've, I don't know, I feel like it can't just be me who has this kind of like a myth of like in their own head about like, I don't know that it's like, well, I don't know who would like my work or like it's, it's yeah. its own weird animal, like, um, or like being <laughs> too ready to not like, I love reading work. that's different than my own. Um, yeah. there are certain times I read poets that who like deeply resonate with me in a way that I'm like, Oh, I love what they're doing. Um, but they, that can be anywhere on the style spectrum for me too. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. like it's not I mean, like I read Jane Springer recently and was like, whoa Jane Springer is definitely someone like a one on my side in terms of like poetics like yeah I think that we have a lot of shared um traditions that we participate in but um yeah I think it would be really boring if we didn't have difference and yeah. um I don't know like I said I I think it was like a really wonderful reflection to see to see like Billy Collins liking your work and choosing your work. I was like, yeah, get it. Like, uh, <laughs> like yeah. seriously, that made Billy Collins cooler for me because, um, because your narratives are very unexpected. Um, you know, they're, I, they're, you know, inflected, they're particularly inflected with where, how you've grown up in your family. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, I think it's just really incredible to, um, I could see the things that he would really like about your work too. And I mean, he really, he specifically names some of your poems, like one of your poems that's particularly like full of humor and um, in like a wry, um, smart way. So I can see, you know, I can see things, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's just a really cool to, to, to get to watch it happen. Um, can you tell us about how you received the news about, <laughs> <laughs> about winning? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So I, um, so like I said, I had submitted to several contests and, and that is another thing I think that's, um, kind of characteristic of the Miller Williams prize is that I think I had heard back from almost all the others that I had submitted to in the fall, right? Cause it's one of the fall deadlines. And so it's one of the later ones, it was like July. Um, and so I was, <laughs> 
it was, it's an interesting way that I heard about it because I was actually on my, I was at a conference, a writer's conference. And before I left for the conference, I, this is just like a comedic series of misfortune <laughs> of unfortunate events. Um, before I went to the conference, I dropped my phone in water. And so, <laughs> and so I, I, I was about to leave for, you know, I had to try drive several states away for this conference. And so I took it to try to get it fixed. And they were like, we need to keep it for a couple hours. And I was like, I don't have a few hours. I'm I have to leave right now. <laughs> and they were like, here's a bag of it wasn't a bag of rice, but whatever they give you um, that's similar. And they were like, good luck. And so I drove, I had to drive through the mountains. Um, I didn't have a phone and on the way, my brakes had gone out um, or earlier that summer. And I, they were fixed by the dealership, quote unquote fixed. Um, and then I could feel them go out again at driving through the mountains. Um, and I didn't have a phone. So I also was like, if I get into an accident, you know, my brakes go out while I'm careening down <laughs> a ravine, I can call no one, no one. So, um, this does have to do with Billy Collins. I <laughs> um, <laughs> and so then like the third day of the conference, it was, I had to do all these things. Like I had to buy a alarm clock who has to do that. Who does that anymore? Um, because I didn't have a phone and I had to wake up for my workshops at the conference. I had, I mostly communicated through my laptop. Um, but yeah, so one of the mornings right before a workshop, I checked my email, which I didn't do every day, but I thought, okay, I'll just check it. And I got this email and I was like, that looks like it says Billy Collins, but I, that can't be right. I need my reading glasses. <laughs> Because I couldn't see it because it was fuzzy because I need I use reading glasses. Um, so I got my reading glasses and I was shocked because it was an email from him and he was like, you need to clean out your voicemail box. <laughs> I <laughs> tried to leave you a message, but your voicemail box is full, but also like you're one of the winners of this prize. Wow. Um, and I was so excited. And then also, of course, I was like, jokes on you, Billy Collins. I don't even have a phone anymore. I dropped <laughs> that phone in the toilet, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and then upon hearing this news that I'd been waiting for for so long, I was able to call no one <laughs> because I didn't have a phone. <laughs> so I did like Facebook message my sister and then she later after that workshop it was funny too because I did tell someone after the workshop who was in the workshop with me just because you know I didn't know anybody at that conference and I yeah. and so I told this one and he was like really you sat through all of workshop and just like <laughs> <laughs> I was just like well what was I supposed to do like Hey everyone. Um, you should have kicked open the door and been like <laughs> thrown my palms out the window. <laughs> I don't need to workshop these anymore. Thrown up horns and been like, poet you winner. <laughs> Most hated I poet miss- at the workshop. <laughs> I 
missed that opportunity. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so so I just kind of had to quietly, you know, pretend I didn't, that didn't happen. But finally, after years and years. um, But yeah, so, so yeah, that's how, so I finally, or I mean, I got an email and that was how I, that's amazing email that I couldn't even read because (laughs) (laughs) a very written very blurry (laughs) font (laughs) it's it's such a mercury mercury and retrograde kind of story it's like how many pieces of technology including lenses are going to fail like Angie as she tries to get her prize news um I know I couldn't even leave that state for like another week because I had to get my brakes fixed oh, and I finally I got a phone <laughs> it was sad oh it seems like um is, have you written about the brakes failing in the mountains yet because that just seems like no, need to be written about um right. I should write about that yeah it sounds like a sounds like one of my anxiety dreams um, that wasn't the last time they went out either. I, <laughs> I got them fixed in that state and then they went out a third time. <laughs> wow. I know it was nuts. Wow. No, I think that car's being too metaphorical for I know. life. <laughs> right. Exactly. I was going to say like the life of a poet. And- yeah. The poet's car. Now you have a haunted car. Wait, is it the same car or a different car that you have now? Oh, a haunted car. Yes. I forgot about that. I, I have a new key fob now. That's what was doing it, but no, this is the same car. So I had to trade that car for the car that was like, you know, that my dad accidentally bought with his dementia. That was, so that's what I, I had, that's what I traded for. Like, once it's which is another that's an essay I guess yeah that is definitely that is definitely an essay um it is actually an essay oh really yeah I haven't it's just sort of sitting in a file Uh, somewhere but it's how it's written it's just you've written it wow okay well if someone wants to uh reach out and solicit that essay from you (laughs) they need to do it because it's probably brilliant um did you want to talk, this is just such a beautiful book. And I just, I know how much work goes into that first book, how many years of one's life goes into first books. Um, and I just, I feel like they should be honored and, um, you know, the cover art, like every design, everything about it, all the people that help, um, and press. And I mean, the cover is gorgeous. Um, it does some really cool things with the font interplay with um the image and I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little about the artist and the art yeah so okay so when I saw this so this is a painting actually Mm -hmm. I don't know if we've talked about that before but um but yeah so and I saw it I think maybe 2012 um and so right when I saw it I thought that has to be the cover of my book, my first book. Um, but I also, as I thought that, and I, and I suddenly got so nervous because then it just had to be the cover. Um, and I was worried because I just thought like, 
uh, you know, you don't get to choose as a poet which press, you know, is going to work or if a contest is going to choose your work. So you never know, like if, you know, in some contests or some, sorry, presses have like set covers. I think a couple of them do, right? Um, and then others, they don't let you choose, I don't think. Um, or they only have a certain amount of money and it's possible that the artist won't let you use it. I was worried about that. I was also worried that someone else might choose it. So, <laughs> so I was excited and anxious all at once, um, not even knowing if I would ever have a book, just already anxious that I wouldn't get this <laughs> painting, get to use this painting as my cover. Um, but yeah, what was I going to say about that? So when I, it was something I asked about when I first talked to someone at the press, um, and I asked if, if we could, he was, and he, you know, the person said, yeah, you can make suggestions. And then once again, I was flooded with anxiety, <laughs> like, no, I need to do this now. <laughs> so then I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to the artist because to ask for permission. Um, and, but once again, like I was just so, it, it took a while. It took about a month. I had a, there was a month where I could have written the artist and I just had to like build up what I was going to say because <laughs> this is so important to me. Um, but I'll read a little bit of the email I sent if you want to hear it um, to Jeremy. So, so and Jeremy Geddes is the artist. Um, so I wrote, I'm just reading part of it. I love how the image is spare and intense at once. The title of my book is, I was waiting to see what you would do first. And I'm excited by the way that this title might pair with the image of a perfect vacuum. I think the intense action in the image renders the title of the book somewhat ironic and adds depth to the meaning of the title, which indicates passivity with a counterpoint of decisive and intense action. I love how the subject of the painting is sustained between the outside world and inside a room. One of the central themes of these poems is a speaker who is itinerant, suspended between places that used to be or are not home. I also admire how the subject's folded body position makes the space in the painting loom larger in a way that can either can be either intimidating or alive with possibility. Some of the poems in this collection address the psychological effects, both gratifying and undesirable, of contained and unconstrained spaces. I also think the subtlety of the neutral hues and the way light is rendered in the painting make the image stunning. So that was just part of it. Um, I felt like I had to make a credible and convincing case because it's such a beautiful piece of art. And I thought like, if you wanted to, you know, if it were my piece of art, I would want to be careful about <laughs> pairing it with someone else's work, right? Um, and I did know, I also saw, I started to see that some others had used, some of his paintings have been covers of other poetry books. Not oh, this, wow. But a few, I saw at least one. And then now it, there's, it was, one of his paintings was the cover of fi a fiction of a novel. Um, and there's at least one other poetry book now. 
and mm. with one of his covers. And so I was getting nervous. I yeah. was like, what if somebody <laughs> takes it? But yeah, so, um, but he was so kind. And actually, I think somebody else answered me. It was his publicist or assistant mm. or somebody. Um, and they were so like generous and kind. Oh, that's so, so nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I was really happy about that. And I was happy that um, the press also like, was open and I think they were excited about this painting, the, de the design or using the painting. The design was somebody at the press and they chose the font and the way that it wraps around the yeah. image of the body, which I do like sort of the 3D, um, the way the, the placement of the font creates a sort of 3D effect. Yeah, that's really cool. The the text wrapping and working with the image and um, the slanting, I think is really cool. Um, the way it follows lines. And um, I hoped because, um, because I loved the whole painting and I especially loved the space that's used in the painting. Mm -hmm. I really hoped that like the whole painting could be on the cover, but they it just, yeah. they weren't able to do it. I think it would have had to have been really small um, and there would have been a lot of space around it. So I do like how they wrapped it around. Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> I hadn't even noticed that really. That's amazing. If you yeah. open up the cover. Right. And then there is still though a lot, you know, there's a lot of room in the painting that's sort of not on the cover of the book. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I still, I, I, on, you know, al alternatively, the alternative to not using the entire space of the painting is to get like the great detail with the close-up of the you know material things that are painted in the room and that's yeah. nice yeah and the books the centrality of the books and yeah it's really I love that you talked about um the itinerancy of the speaker and like the idea of being between, or I don't know, it sounded like you were also kind of talking about like a limbo space and um, the fact that the person who looks like, like a woman or a femme, like mid-air in pajamas in the, in the painting, a perfect vacuum. Um, and when I didn't really think about it with the cover of your book as much, but when I look at the image open on my computer and like it's a domestic space. It's a bedroom space. There's like this pillow kind of stranded on the bed and the books are kind of like tumbling. Everything's like mid action. Right. And I, and I don't know, I guess I, I'm not sure whether I thought about this person as going out or coming in, but when you see the painting, it looks like they're coming in or, or I don't know that there's something, if it's a vacuum, right. The idea that something is like the, pulling and that something's getting sucked or like what you know like this boom and I don't yeah. know it's really incredible the flying glass and yeah it seems like she's being pulled inward through the outside right um or yeah and she's just come through the glass because the glass is coming toward her inside um and the light is really beautiful I think yeah, it just really does. I mean, I think it changes the the shape and the space depending on how you see it. And I, I love the wraparound on your book and that's really cool. I had it like the crushing like windows. Oh, and there's a bird. 
<laughs> yes. Wait. I think so, it's a dove. So it's not on this version of the painting. Oh, really? That you're looking at? Online? I'm looking at, but maybe it's not a whole the whole thing that I'm looking at because it doesn't go past the windows. But the yeah, that's really cool. Um yeah. Also, it's just so nicely frames the blurb from Billy Collins. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there are no apparent limits to the imaginative reach of Angie Mizakis. Um, that's another, another quote I really loved him for. Um, so I wrote a review of, this, of your collection for the Cleveland Review of Books. And I bring it up because I recount the fact that you and I were students together at George Mason University in the MFA program. Yeah. And that I have a very clear memory. And I talk about this in the opening of the review of um, there being a poet who I remember like they were a year or two ahead of me. So they were like one of the more senior students um, talking about a poem where the speaker has an orange and who says, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm going to like not quote it well, but it's um, <laughs> Mary, Mary Ruffles, yeah, the kiss of the sun, right. Yeah. Um, where the speaker says like, you know, come looking for me and I'll hold an orange like above the crowd. And, and I remember you like holding your hand into the room and like gesturing, like you were holding the orange and it was just like really beautiful. And I had never heard of Mary Rufel. I'd never heard of this poem. And I think for years, I actually didn't know. I couldn't remember like who wrote that, like, where was that? What was that poem? And then I saw someone tweet it and I was like, oh my God, that was the poem Angie was talking about. Um, and I thought that was so cool, like to have that memory across all these years and reading your book and just feeling like there was something about that, like intimate gesture of connection and also lostness and distance and memory that is just huge in your work. Um, and also that you have this really beautiful epigraph. Um, yeah, when you brought up the orange and then I thought about the orange and the epigraph, I was, I was kind of stunned. Yeah. By that connection, because I didn't remember, I didn't remember bringing that poem up in our. So cool. Was yeah. it in, was it our eco poetics class with Jennifer? Yeah, I kind of think it was. Yeah. It was either that, or we were also the semester before in Eric Pinky's poetry planet. Yeah, like, no, I I remember sitting in a circle in Jen's okay. classroom. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have been the eco poetics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have also have orange water and like you have, Oh, right. I forgot about the orange blossom water. Yeah. Yeah. You wow. have multiple, <laughs> like, it's like a, a image for you that you come back to, which is really beautiful. That is not something I would have guessed. I don't think that the orange is something, but I feel like that happens a lot where, um, I remember I heard at, I was at a reading where Mary Shubis was reading once and she, someone asked her about like the, how, why she returns to images of spoons and huh. they, <laughs> and they brought up some other images as well. And she said, she didn't notice that she just had never noticed that oh. she even returned to those images. Yeah. So that's interesting as well, that we kind of return to images unconsciously or subconsciously. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. And sometimes when you're putting a book together, you try to look, it's like, what are the things I'm returning to? Um, 
I like doing like the word cloud with a oh, yeah. collection of poems and seeing what words really pop up. Um, I, I don't, have I done that? I don't know. I just know that I did the word cloud once for my Facebook statuses and it was the most boring word cloud ever. Yeah, right? It was, yeah. It was seriously like, like they, <laughs> of, and. <laughs> okay, so you thinking so, about the word word cloud. <laughs> I can see you writing about that though. I can see you writing about a boring word cloud um, and making it funny. Um, Cause it is, I mean, it, and you think about like a word can repeat three times and who cares? Like, it's not a big deal. It can be they or something, but like if an image repeats three times, like that's so powerful um, in a collection. And that can be a lot of times for an image to repeat. So I think it's really, it's interesting that it, it, you know, it's not simple information. It's not like something you can input and a computer can roll out an analysis of your book that says like what's <laughs> most important in it. Like it will just miss yeah. it. Right. Um, oh, speaking of which you will think this is funny. Now nah, I'm not going to be able to remember it. There's a Twitter account, which is um, city images of cities described by like Microsoft's urban AI descriptor. Oh, and it's really? like hilarious. You really need to Google <laughs> this up because some of them okay. are totally accurate. And it's like a picture of a city at night. And it's a picture of a city at night. And then the next one is like a picture of like office buildings and you can see into them and it's like colorful and it's like a bookshelf with books on it. Oh, wait, I love that. And then the next one's like <laughs> some kind of like cool modern, like silver. I don't know. It was like this oddly shaped, um, innovative art design building from the top. And it was like a chocolate cake. <laughs> So you have to go like, I don't know. I think making fun of machines is probably one of my callings in life because it's fun. Yeah, well, but, there are um, a lot of bot accounts. Well, yes. there's like Richard Seiken bot. Yeah. Does he know about that? Um, and there's the Ann Carson yes. bot. Wait, isn't there something funny about like, I think it's like, I think the Richard Seiken bot is the only account he follows or something. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, there's something funny. That's crazy. It came up a few years ago. It's a beautiful, I mean, I always kind of, I always want to see lines from Richard Seiken. So yeah, I, I love the Ann Carson one. Mm-hmm. I only see the, I don't think I follow the Richard Seiken one. I think I just see it when other people engage with it. But. He's also a Vita and Virginia bot. Oh, and that's really good. And in fact, that kind of led me to reading their letters now. Which oh, are really? excellent. Yes. That's awesome. Also, the thing about the letters that is so cool is that um, they selected them to also pair alongside their diaries. Oh, and, wow. And their letters to their intimate others. So oh you God. end up getting all of these different layers happening, like um, they're assembled to the right, they're happening chronologically at the same time. And it's just the, ooh, it's, it's kind of gives you chills. Like, the yeah. ability to see how two people are speaking to each other, but also their other intimates and also themselves in their diaries. Like, I don't know. It actually almost feels like a little forbidden and like, I wouldn't have that <laughs> at all, but it's fascinating uh, as a, as a nosy reader. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't the Indigo girls <laughs> have a stop about that? <laughs> I love where this conversation is going. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they have a song about like called burn the letters. 
about how um, one of them was reading their her, their mom was a librarian and she bought him a a book of Virginia Woolf's letters and they couldn't read it because they felt bad about oh. reading reading her letters I think it's a no maybe they just have a song called Virginia Woolf I think that's, that's amazing yeah that's so good that's so good like I said this is currently the perfect <laughs> conversation um <laughs> amazing um but i remember them telling that story on one of the live albums hmm. about it yes yeah. they do okay but so perfect. Um, but yeah i get i and I, that makes sense because i would i think i would feel bad too i haven't read her letters though i did just buy um a book of her like diary entries and it's yeah. not all of it's not her whole diary but there's right. one that's just yeah. and so and but I don't know I guess I don't I'm gonna read it <laughs> I'm not gonna when I, when I, I think a, my my moral <laughs> like <laughs> I know compass for is outweighs my nosy compass right I mean the ability to like see and it's it's fascinating and I mean these were people who were, you know, we used to have the phrase, a man of letters. Um, I mean, they were, they were people of letters, they were writers. So they knew, they knew what they were doing when they would like write to the archive in that way. In fact, like, um, Virginia Woolf says to Vita, like, I haven't written letter, like, I haven't written letters like this since before I was married. And she talks about like how she used to write drafts of all her letters because like you kept them. Oh. Right. Um, and so she didn't do that anymore. Um, but it's interesting. Like they would consider their letters as also some their documents, right. It wasn't just yeah. like, this is an intimate correspondence. No one will ever see. It was like, this is part of my writing life. Um, yeah. And they would like take it very seriously. So it's, it's, it is very interesting. Um, I mean, this can also lead into, we were talking a little bit before we had a good gossip before our podcast started, (laughs) (laughs) um, writers in film. Um, and there is a really good Vita and Virginia movie, by the way, of course they're both kind of idealized. Um, they were both like really in, in real life, they were both, they seem very tall, um, kind of (laughs) like, I don't know. They made them like cute and very femme, which I appreciated. Yeah. Like, it was fun to watch, but um, yeah, they both were kind of like imposing women, I think a little bit in person. Yeah. Um, yes. Writers in film. Yeah. So we were talking about, well, we were talking about, Oh, because you said that, um, that you, well, you were making the joke that was really funny about <laughs> what are they going to film in a film about a writer, just like them sitting at their desk yeah. <laughs> writing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that makes, but yeah. So then I was talking about the Joan Didion film and how um, when films are made about writers, I guess I'm particularly talking about documentaries. Mm-hmm. I am drawn to them and I want you know, I want to know sort of what their lives are like. Yeah. Um, and, but Joan Didion, and so what we were talking about Joan Didion's, the documentary her nephew, her nephew made called The Center Will Not Hold. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I was, but I was saying that she sort of had a dramatic life and kind of the life of a celebrity. I mean, she's, she's pretty wealthy and sort of runs in those circles. So yeah, I don't know that she has the life of a typical writer. Yeah. Though it's- are there films about typical writers? I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And the I obsession with like mental health and writers and stuff too. Yeah like those are the ones they want to make films about or if they're fictional I mean there are some very famous uh, writers and films I mean it's hard for me not to think of The Shining and other (laughs) I know I've seen the terrible one with like Johnny Depp in the woods like he also goes goes insane in that one um and like I've never seen The Shining and I probably won't I don't I can't watch oh it's really good it's I can't like shake them they don't go away yeah and those images stay with me forever even if I think that it's harmless I'll just say like oh it's fine I'll just watch this yeah devastating horror image (laughs) yeah I would never think about it again and that never happens Yeah, I don't like slasher stuff or oh, yeah. really gruesome, violent stuff. Like that's not, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I'm totally fascinated by horror and um, yeah. in Christian Collier and I just talked about some of my favorite horror in the last oh, episode. Really? Um, yes. And I mean, we, okay. We talked about Midnight Mass, which is totally a horror show for like ex-angelicals. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. That's something it's, it's yeah my sister's currently watching it and it, it's interesting it's very interesting um but yeah the idea that you know so much of writing happens in interiorly like like yeah. Virginia Woolf since we're just since I'm just dragging Wolf into everything today um like she talks about like why do I have to write in the most sordid rooms um and I've read Annie Dillard say I think it's an Hmm, a writing writer's life I don't know she has that one that's like a memoir about writing um which is kind of rough it's kind of in the rough but it's like an interesting it's an interesting to read um and she talks about like having to be in a room without windows or like um, oh there's like a view of a tree in the parking lot it's too much she has to like cover it up um and I I've always like kicked a little bit of inside I'm like it's not bad to have a nice place to write okay like don't feel like you got to punish yourself I'm sorry you can have plants you can have art you can have a window I have a window with a beautiful tree outside that's turning that's okay guys like um but then there is something to say about not having distractions or I know I hear a lot of writers on Twitter complain about leaf blowers and I sympathize Uh, (laughs) I read a writing life is it a writing life? I can't remember. The, write, the writing life. Yeah. I read it like sometime in my early twenties. I was like mm-hmm. obsessed with Annie Dillard and I read a lot of her, um, nonfiction and, but I remember what I remember about that book is that it being, it, that it was intelligible at first and then it sort of descended into, yeah. <laughs> into <laughs> madness. I don't yeah. Uh, that's all I remember though I don't really remember except that it became very abstract toward the end and I it was difficult to penetrate those thoughts is that is that true how it's written or am I misremembering yeah I remember it feeling like it it like I said it was kind of in the rough like you had to like wade through some stuff and she says some really interesting things 
I mean, I think it contains that really famous quote of hers, the, um, uh, oh, how we spend our days. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How we spend our days is how, how we spend your life, your life, right. That it's like what you do during the day is like what makes up your life. Um, and that's like a really powerful, I mean, it's, I don't want to think about that. It's really a rewriting, but you know, it's like a a neo-Aristotelian statement. It's definitely that. That that quote makes me uncomfortable because (laughs) I don't. (laughs) You're like, no, (laughs) that's not true. (laughs) I don't want to account for all my moments. Yeah, so many like misused or unused Mm -hmm. moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that probably are becoming my life, but. think about that yeah so so no thanks Annie Teller (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um I know um I might one of those things I guess where um you know I think I I posted a quote once on Facebook that was something like and it's really nice and it's something I feel like I aspire to Um, but it was something like, do it was about like helping others. And it was like, do all you can when you can for however long you can. And someone else wrote, that sounds exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this noble quote that sort of summed up how I would like to live. And then I was like, yeah, you're right. Like I can't. You can't really log every hour as mm. useful or um or I don't know valuable one. Yeah. At, yeah. at least at, as a writer or as a person, I yeah. feel like there has to be some rest or even just, you know, um Yeah, I don't know. Thinking about being like producing every hour or something that right is that you can log, I guess. Yeah. It's daunting. Uh, you not you and I have a, a shared background in some ways in terms of um kind of like the super Protestant background. Your yeah. dad was a pastor and mine was an elder. Um and I, you know, we talk about like the myth of the Protestant work ethic, but there's like, there's absolutely a Catholic version of that, which is like, well, you know, like, and from a Protestant kid's viewpoint, right. It's like, oh, it's, you know, the whole works-based um, <laughs> lifestyle, which is like, how can you do good today? Um, yeah, so I yeah. think there's a lot of that, like that moral pressure. And um, I mean, one of the things we've seen this last year, this might just be a tangent, but like taking time off. Sundays, like not going to church, keeping our children at home because they were unvaccinated. And our church has a lot of um, immune compromised folk. And it's like, we didn't want to bring germs or um, contribute in any way to that. So like being home and Sunday became more of a day of rest because like growing up, Sunday was a day you got to church, you socialized, you had Sunday school, you had, you know, the fellowship, you had this worship service and and you got dressed up and you were in front of people and then you came home and sometimes you went back for evening church or, you know, it it almost became a day of work. And it was like the, from, in my family, mom would do extra work 
So quote unquote, you could have a day of rest, which meant she would like have a crock pot meal or, you know, it involved more labor rather than. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's like, this isn't a Sabbath. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of how I always thought about it too. Like, oh, Sunday I have to do, you know, there's stuff I have to do. (laughs) And now I'm getting to the point where I like miss church where I'm like, I want to enter. And this is really selfish truly but like I want to enter that contemplative space and have other like I feel like my brain lights up in church that there's something like pings off it in good ways especially because I'm not a faithful bible reader anymore because because I did so many years of like reading the bible through in a year and it, it just I wore me out yeah and it became such a a rote and it became unmagical and I didn't want that anymore in my life so now I really only hear it in church and um it's really it can be like really beautiful that way experience that way instead of something that you have to do instead of something it's like I don't know I kind of got over that um that phase and I might come back to it I don't know um for no other reason than (laughs) I'm like I've been trying to I'm like oh I need to do some more like biblical engagement with my children like I want them to be familiar with with the bible and the other day I I asked I was like do you know who this character is and um my nine-year-old was like is he a tennis player and I was like oh god (laughs) like okay we need to but then I started looking at kids devotionals this week and they're terrible like they're gendered and they're ableist oh yeah yeah yeah. I know that's yeah, that's the reason, man, I haven't been to a church in a long time. And I know there are like more progressive like places that I would be interested in checking out. But um, but yeah, it's so hard to like politically. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I would assume that that material is like politically incongruous with. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and your dad wait was your dad a baptist preacher yeah oh wow yeah so he was an arab baptist preacher <laughs> <laughs> i know it's funny when i say this well i guess to anyone but especially <laughs> <laughs> because that doesn't exist yeah. you know he was a traveling preacher wow. and he was you know he's he was arab um there, I mean, it does exist. There are, of course, like Protestant um, Arabs. He had a church. Eventually, he became a pastor of a church, and it was an Arabic-speaking church in Chicago. Wow. Um, he had an English-speaking congregation and then an Arabic-speaking. But, you know, typically, like stereotypically wow. and typically, um, there aren't a lot of Protestant Arabs, but there are a lot of, um, like, Catholic Arabs and so anyway, that's not a picture that you really see a lot <laughs> is like an Arab traveling preacher in the South, mostly and the Midwest is where he typically, because that's where the Baptist churches were. And so, yeah. It, <laughs> I know. So would your family travel with him or did he travel by himself? Um, both. So sometimes we traveled with him. Not all the time though. Like we went to school in Indiana. So typically during, like if he went for like a week long conference or something like that, which he did often, um, he would travel by himself. 
and then sometimes it would go with him like if it was a weekend just a weekend or something yeah wow (laughs) I know and I haven't you know I haven't written a lot about that Mm. I think just because the, uh, that uh, a lot of that is still really complicated for me and I haven't really yeah yeah um absolutely I haven't come to many to enough conclusions mm-hmm. about what I think about it or yeah. to, to write about it really but I do have some you know scraps here and there I have an essay that's sort of about my dad <laughs> traveling and that's one of the elements or one of the subjects of the essay I mean it's really interesting because you used the word itinerant earlier about the speaker of your poems and then to say oh my dad was a traveling Baptist preacher and then to be like wow I mean so (laughs) I think about this a lot I mean it's when you do genealogy and you're used to kind of looking like a bird's eye view at your family, you start seeing that, um, I don't know, it's easy to feel like you're an individual and you do stuff on your own until you begin looking at your whole family. And then you start seeing these recurring patterns in the things that happen all across. And even just, I don't know, I think a lot lately about how I I feel like one of the things I have to watch out for is being preachy in my palms. Um, But my sister is a literal preacher. Um, so, So I like I'm like the poet version or like the writer version. Um, and I think she's a lot better at it than I am. So I can learn a lot from her, but like, it's interesting to think about, um, the family connections and things. Yeah. Um, well, also I think when I was thinking about the speaker being itinerant and sort of not in the same place, mm -hmm. I think I was thinking of myself more as an adult, just because I've moved a lot as an adult. I think I've moved at some point I was counting and I kind of have lost count, but I think at one point it was like 25 times in 20 years or something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. But at military actually, level. <laughs> yeah, right. But we actually did have a, um, you know, one, I did have one house that I grew up in as a child until like sometime in college and then my parents moved to Chicago. So as far as like a home place, it wasn't the same place though. Mm. My dad, you know, I did travel sometimes with my dad. So, um, so yeah, I guess I didn't, I didn't connect those two things, but we did do a lot of traveling. So there's something to me about um, being a poet and a writer like that lifestyle, which feels itinerant to me yeah um, that you're like piecing together especially the way we have to work with multiple jobs and adjuncting and you know even just conferencing and um in fact it feels it felt really good to be reading Vita and Virginia's letters because they're doing the same things like oh I'm giving a lecture here in town and I'm doing this thing And, and like also like the whole Hogarth press and like Virginia and her husband having a small press and publishing friends and like writing reviews of friends. I mean, it just felt very, yeah. um, I'm like, okay. So a lot of, a lot of support for writers hasn't changed, meaning it hasn't gotten better. 
Yeah, um, yeah. it's kind of frustrating because I mean, this is a hundred years ago that I'm reading about and I'm like, wait, <laughs> this is a hundred years later and it's really not any better wait. or different or. <laughs> Did you read that tweet recently that was like the saddest part of <laughs> Little Women isn't Beth dying. It's that Joe gets a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars for a story, and the rate like hasn't changed since. I did not read that. Oh my god. <laughs> true that. Uh, true. And also, like, the things we do for free, I mean, is it- Well, and it is itinerant because you can't count on it. I mean, yeah. for, and, unless you have immediate success and you publish a book mm-hmm. in your 20s or something, um, and uh, otherwise, you can't say, well, I'll be successful at this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, you can only hope. Yeah. And that's it. And we have these, yeah, these weird early success like mentalities and the like 25 under 25 30 under 30 yeah, and right. wait did you okay so did you see that other tweet like did you see, <laughs> okay someone had tweeted like oh my students referred to a 34 year old character as in the <laughs> last chapters of their life <laughs> wait I <laughs> I didn't see that I thought uh, yeah it was something like in the late stage of life yes and I'm like excuse me okay Dante refers to himself in the middle of life's way okay 35 yeah. middle of life's way that's how I prefer to think of myself <laughs> I guess um, I, could, I I should I feel like I should say that I so this book came out and I was how old am I um I let's see I was 43 when the book came out that was last year. Um, so, and I think I would, if somebody would have told me in my twenties hmm. or maybe, you know, in my head, I think in my twenties, I thought it seemed more possible. Cause I thought, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I guess this will just, you know, this happens for some people. So I just don't mm-hmm. hope that it does and hopefully it'll work mm-hmm. out. But then sometime in my thirties, there was a kind of time where I was thinking like, well, maybe it won't work out, you know, and maybe I'll just do something else. Um, but I have to say that I don't feel like I wish it would have been published earlier or anything Hmm. like that. I Mm -hmm. feel like I'm happy with the way the book turned out. I'm glad that it wasn't, (laughs) I am glad like in a literal way, I I guess if it, if it, those, these poems could have been written earlier. That would have been nice. But since they weren't, if my book would have been published 10 years ago, I wouldn't have liked it. Like I didn't care for that manuscript. I just was sending it out because I felt like I had to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, there's nothing that I, that makes me feel like, oh, I mean, I guess I didn't, you know, I haven't had a tenor track job in those years and that might've been nice or whatever, but um, but otherwise, as far as the book itself, I guess I'm just trying to say that um, I don't think it really matters what age you are when yeah, no. the book happens, because now I'm just happy that it exists. You know, I, I never think like, oh, if only this could have come out five years earlier, you know, I just don't. 
So I, I want to say that in a way that is hopefully encouraging mm-hmm. to people who are, who feel older, at least, um, that it, that, yeah, you don't have to worry about the no 30, 30 under 40, was no. whatever it is. The work takes time. And I almost feel like people don't want to hear this, but you get better. Like, yeah, I'm sorry, but you're going to be an astoundingly better writer at 35 than you were at 20. Like, yeah, that's, I'm sorry for you, but to figure that out <laughs> if you're young, but like, it's true. <laughs> like, yeah. And my friends who are in their forties, I don't know. They all seem so young and also so like their writing's so good. Like it's, you know, I think of, um, I just read that, you know, Toni Morrison's first novel, came out when she was 37 like yeah um I I think we the success narrative doesn't want to normalize the fact that you are often in your 30s and 40s when you're coming out with your first text um but I've for for a while now I always think of like um John Milton you know Paradise Lost coming out in his 50s and 60s right Uh like that and if you look I mean juvenilia reads like juvenilia and there's a reason we have a whole word for describing what people wrote when they were young like it's right. I mean like, this is a this is good for a kid but yeah. it's not exactly yeah the, the canonical work yeah because writing like anything else gets better the more you do it and um you know, one of my, one of my favorite preschool teachers always would always tell my, my youngest, um, practice doesn't make perfect practice makes progress. And, um, there definitely is that like, that's hard. And it's not that I'm not saying like, obviously like we should respect young writers. And I mean, there's a lot of gorgeous, brilliant work coming out from young writers. And I think of that, there's that Bible verse, you know, do not, do not let them despise you for your youth. Like, don't be despised for your youth. Like, um, good writing can happen at any time, but, um, yeah, just like you, I think I'm really grateful that my book didn't come out earlier, that it, it was allowed to become the book it became. I was allowed to grow up. Um, yeah, yeah. And like, I I mean, and some people are just like ahead of me. (laughs) They just were, talented earlier or whatever but um which is totally totally cool (laughs) but I used to you know have you heard that Ira Glass quote about like taste and about like a young artist and getting better and have you heard about that okay let me find it because it's really good Uh, It is interesting to me that several people from, while you look that up, several people um, from our program, you, Danica Stegeman, who now has another last name as well, right? LeMay, yeah. Yeah, Danica Stegeman, LeMay, you and me, that we all had our books come out because our Uh, program tended to be kind of a slower program. And they told me like, it'll be nine or 10 years. Like that's how- Yeah. Like they were like, it's typically, they said like students from our program typically come out with their first book nine or 10 years after. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) So I guess I didn't, I didn't think that just because there were people who were there when I was there, whose books were coming out. Well, right before I was there. So like Brian Broder Mm. had his book, other latitudes won the Akron prize. And then 
Danielle Doolin, that might've been just like a few years later. Um, hers came out with, she won the Miller Williams prize. Oh, interesting. That was before Billy Collins was judging it. And then, some, oh, and then Michael Martinez, I, all these people were there like right before or while I was there, but they were, you know, ahead of me in the program. Um, he won the Walt Whitman prize while I was there. He had already graduated, but, hmm. um, but just a few years earlier. So that's why I was thinking at the time, like, oh, hmm. crap, <laughs> people's books are, are happening like right now. And there were a lot of people who came out of that program who, who published, you know, one big contest or, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I wish I would have heard that. That would have been <laughs> helpful to me. <laughs> I don't Who think told you that I'm, I need to write yeah. an email. I'm just kidding. I just don't like, I don't know. My MFA thesis was like, so focused on, I don't know. I was really into philosophy and, um, I was interested in like, oh, the intersection of faith and literature. And I was, I just hadn't thought through stuff in it at I couldn't ground my work. I was having a really hard time. And like, when I look at that thesis, the best, it was called strange home and the best poem in it I wrote was about my family. And I think it takes a long time to figure out that writing about your family is some of the best work you can do because, and some of the most, because it's so, you have such a rich history with it. And I think coming up with subjects that you're going to have a, a deep connection with is, is hard and important. Um, cause no matter what it is, I think you need to have that in your writing as like a deep connection to your work. It cannot, it can't, your writing subjects can't be flipped. They can't just be off the top of your head. Like, I think it actually is about like, yeah, that's how you get writing a poem. A lot of times is something that just occurs to you very quickly, but the things that you're able to connect with in your work are going to be things you typically have a history or an interest or a passion for or something like there has to be a relationship there. And I think with our families, we just, we have that relationship across years. Yeah. Um, so when my students, when I have freshman students who start writing about their families, it's often their best work that they're doing. Cause they're like, they find this well, like this inner well of like things they have thoughts and feelings about with over a period of time. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah. you were looking at that quote. Yeah, I did find it. Okay. It says nobody tells people who are beginners. And I really wish somebody had told this to me is that all of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste but it's like there's a gap that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff and you're, what you're making isn't so good. It's not that great. It's really not that great. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your taste is still killer and your taste is good enough that you can tell what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You know what I mean? A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I would just like to say, sorry, like to say to you with all my heart is that most everyone I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste and they could tell what they were making. It wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it fell short. It didn't have the special thing that we wanted it to have. 
And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work, do a huge volume of work, put yourself in a deadline so that every week or every month, you know, you're going to finish one story because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you actually, that you are actually going to catch up and close that gap. And the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. It takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while. And you just have to fight your way through that. Okay. So I think that is so helpful to hear now. I mean, in retrospect, <laughs> um, but at the time, you know, there were years where I felt where I was obsessive about revising. I would revise again and again, and I would annoy people in my workshops. This was in my MA, before my MFA. I probably annoyed people at my MFA, in my MFA workshops too, in other ways. But I would, I would revise a poem between the time I turned it in and the time it was workshop. Mm -hmm. So people were like, oh, I don't know which version you put in our mailboxes you know, or whatever. Um, I don't know which one is the more recent one or some people wouldn't get the new version because I was like slipping it into mailboxes like furiously before workshop happened um, because I, I had already revised it. Like I already knew it wasn't good and it needed to be better. Um, and so, which is fine. I mean, I think it's, pardon me, what wishes I was like a little obsessive like that still, at least as far as like, paying attention, maybe I don't pay attention that, um, to revision that, uh, like, like on an incremental, yeah. <laughs> like a, a micro level like that as much, but it's because I was trying with all my might to make it better. And I couldn't, because I just wasn't at the place where I could make it better yet. Um, but yeah, so I, I was really obsessive about revision and now now I don't revise as much I sort of revise more as I go along because we already sort of developed this filter after years and years and we can filter out from the beginning more so than we could in the past what yeah. isn't quality work or what isn't going to serve the poem um so yeah so I guess that's just the more the very specific way that I can identify as this is the thing, <laughs> this is the action that I, that showed that I just wasn't, um, I hadn't like gotten to that point yet where I was, you know, making the thing that I wanted to make. I knew it wasn't good. And so I kept going, returning and returning and returning like obsessively just to um, try to make it better, even though that maybe those <laughs> attempts were futile, but there's still, you know, value in, the returning and the revision and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. But I do feel like it took me years. Yeah. And, and of course it's still happening, you know, mm -hmm. on some level, nobody's, <laughs> nobody ever gets it like a ride. <laughs> <laughs> no. And if you think you do, um, right. It's you're done. <laughs> you're probably Jonathan Freight Franson or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> a man, a white man. You can edit that out. <laughs> or no. <don't>. Never. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, I think of Chaucer, right? The, the life's so short, the craft's so long to learn or, um, 
you know, I think of Socrates, know thyself, right? Because that's impossible. It's, and yet we think we can know other people somehow sometimes um, when we don't yeah. even, we don't even know ourselves. We literally don't know what we're going to do sometimes. And we think we're going to do one thing and we do the complete opposite. Right. Um, and, you know, I think of the Yates. Um, it is myself that I revise over. And I think about all the time. That's what we're revising. Yeah. Um, and right. I think I also think that sort of we're protected from a level of self-awareness that could be disastrous. Mm. Like we can't know ourselves too well because I think it would be self-destructive. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, I don't know that I, you know, of course I want to fill in some of the blind spots so I can be a kinder person and I can love better and all of those things. But at the same time, if I am too aware of my flaws, I think it would be self-destructive, right? Like, I don't know that we'd be able to tolerate it. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be tolerable. Yeah. Because of course there are some ways that we can't, there are some things about ourselves. We can't fix, we can't fix everything. Right. Right. It's like every time I hear a complaint about an unlikable character, um, something I really think about a lot, or when I'm like, I get done with, I got done with a memoir recently and was like, wow, it was really good. It was really interesting. And I was like, wow, but that main character, they were unlikable. (laughs) (laughs) But then I'm like, I'm like, I'm probably unlikable too. Like when you think like when you actually get inside something or like if you're really inside your head or like who is truly, truly likable? Is that just like a myth we have about ourselves? Like I'm likable. Um, And then (laughs) like, what are we actually showing people in our writing? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe people who are likable just have better filters. What I don't want to maybe... I don't want to believe that's true. I guess I want to think that there's a pure likability <laughs> pure goodness, but that probably doesn't exist. Yeah. It sounds like the everlasting gobstopper or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the mythic candy. <laughs> um, Angie, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. I've loved all the places this conversation has gone. Um, Would you like to close this out with a poem? Sure. Okay. I will read. Oh, my kidney. Should I read that one? Yes, please. Okay. In a suburb outside of Chicago, my parents sit next to each other at their respective dialysis machines. Outside, the trees aren't touching each other. My mom says she never feels her blood leaving her body or entering after it's dialyzed. If only we could feel what didn't work inside us as it moves out of us, our illusions, misperceptions, the heartlessness within the heart. In the 80s, my grandma would sit on our sofa and watch on the news, bombs falling on Beirut, missiles landing in her neighborhood. Oh my kidneys, she'd say, because that's what she heard when when people here said, oh my goodness. My dad first knew he needed glasses when he was standing on a landing in his family's apartment building in West Beirut during the war of 1958. He couldn't see the gun pointing at him from the building across the street. His mother pushed him out of the way and took him to the eye doctor the next day. When my uncle tried to correct my grandmother so she'd finally say, oh my goodness, my dad told her he doesn't know English. His nephrologist keeps telling him to stop skipping dialysis. 
your kidneys are shit was the latest diagnosis from an ER doctor. They've bottomed out. Oh, my kidneys, says my dad. My brother asked my dad if he can take the standing globe my dad has had for so long that it still says Palestine on it. He says, take it. I buy a globe that lights up at a thrift store and offer it to my dad. He holds up his hand and says, no, I'm tired of the world. I lied. My parents each go to different dialysis centers in different suburbs of Chicago, but whenever I picture them, they're together, or I want to picture them together. They finally have something in common. What are the chances? The last year that my mom could still walk on her own, could still drive her own car, I was on the phone with her and she was lost in the suburbs of, sorry, she was lost in, the sub, in one of the suburbs near Chicago. She was supposed to see houses, but instead she saw water and trees. I went the wrong way, she said, and the wrong way is beautiful. I put the last piece of Namora cake in my dad's mouth, but he says he can't taste the same way anymore. He can't taste the orange blossom water. I can taste it, he says, but it's way far away, like we're still walking toward it. Thank you so much, Angie. Yeah, thank you so much. For our listeners, thank you for joining us for episode 15 of Of Poetry Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's work, please check the show notes for links, um, as well as a link to purchase. I was waiting to see what you would do first. Thanks so much for joining us.